Hebrews 2020, and this is increment one, three, two. For those that happen to be watching by video, incidentally, there's been some curiosity expressed about the lead-in to my messages, and you perhaps hear the eloquent voice of my co-laborer and compadre, Emery Persinger. He is giving, before these messages, he's very helpful to me by giving me a what I call creative Trinitarian countdowns. So some curiosity has been expressed about just what that is. That's what it is. So I'm grateful to my co-laborer. And this again is increment 132. And we'll continue in the study of Hebrews, which might have a good alternate title. You might call it Confessions of a Christ Supremacist. The Confessions of a Christ Supremacist. I myself must confess I am a Christ Supremacist. And I hope not a card-carrying one, but a cross-bearing one. Now, one regret I have as we begin the study today, one regret that I do have about the way we're proceeding with our messages, we are recording these somewhat in advance in anticipation of anything God might want to do in his plan and the where's and when's and why for's of what's going to be in the future. So I'm a few weeks ahead. We're a few weeks ahead here. In fact, the message that I'm recording in this hour will be technically for D-Day this year, June 6th. The reason I have somewhat of a regret about that is because weeks ago, a dear friend of mine, and of many in Tetelestai Phalanx, has graduated into the presence of the Lord of the Armies. And he was a faithful soldier of Christ and a man of remarkable courage, a remarkable faith, remarkable perseverance, and who exemplifies all the best about what we receive from exhortation in the Scripture. His name is Frank Lewis, and my memories of him are many, because for many years, while we were at Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hall in Oakland, PA, he always stood at the door when we came in for the message, and he was a doorkeeper. He literally kept the door and always did it with a kind and gracious greeting. He was a very soft-spoken man. He had endured a tremendous adversity in his life and overcame it through the faith and perseverance that's in Jesus Christ. Every time I think of Frank, and this has been happening for a long time, but I think of it even more now that he's one of those of our phalanx who's on the other side, who has passed through the heavens into the presence of our great archpriest. 
I think of Psalm 84.10 when I think of Frank. And I think of his heart saying this. For a day in your courts, Lord, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And you could tell by Frank's manner. You could tell by his countenance. You could tell by his attentiveness to the word of God. You could tell by his perseverance to be there year after year after year. Even when we left Soldiers and Sailors or Trinity School, that he was indeed considering one day listening to the word of God in the courts of God as better than a thousand days anywhere else. It's amazing how much can happen in one hour when you're in the presence of the Lord and the presence of his people, the presence of the Holy Spirit who teaches and enlightens us as to our Lord Jesus Christ. Frank was not only a doorkeeper in the house of God, Frank was God's house. As Hebrews says, we are his house if we hold fast the confession of the hope that we had at the beginning until the very end. You can't say that about anybody who's still around on the earth because we don't know if they'll hold it till the end, but we can say it about Frank. He held fast the confident hope, the expectation of seeing his Savior, Jesus Christ, until the end. What he had at the beginning, he held fast that reality with the same fervency and the same firm grasp that he had at the beginning. He held the reality he had at the start to the very end of his life on earth. I'm grateful also for Ricky and Sherry Martin, who visited him regularly in his illness, his later illness, and as his health deteriorated. One thing Ricky said that Frank said recently, because he reads the notes and he was keeping up with the Hebrew series, he said, tell Rick to keep cooking the bread because I'm eating it. And he understood the word to be the bread of life and he ate it. He found the words of God and ate them and they became for him the joy and the rejoicing of his heart. And so today, I want to begin this message just with a salute to Frank. Frank, we'll see you soon. Thank you for your service that you rendered to his majesty, the king. Thank you for choosing a day in the courts of God rather than thousands of days complaining about the near catastrophic trials that you had to endure. Thank you for being a faith hero. Thank you for being worthy of being written up 
in the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. See you soon, Frank. And now, Father, we thank you for the memory of such a man of faith. And we thank you for this opportunity that we have even now to continue in the word of God and to imitate his faithfulness by participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you in his name. Amen. In our theological exegesis of Hebrews, we're considering right now a juncture of sorts of a gracious soteriology and a benevolent Christology. Now to former pagans, and you'll have to turn to Ephesians for this one because it's just the way we're leading off today. He wakens my ear morning by morning to hear a word from him, and today this was the word. So we see how it blends into Hebrews. But Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, going through 13, the scripture says this, and Paul is writing to former pagans. He wrote in Ephesians 2, my translation, which I developed this morning from the Greek text, verse 11. Therefore, remember that once you were pagans in the flesh who are called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision just because of an action performed on the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were apart from Christ, Israel's Messiah. Now, I want to just look at this word because the word is chorus, C-H-O-R-I-S, apart from, chorus, apart from. The reason this struck my eye this morning is because this is a word that in an alternate translation, one which I accept of Hebrews 2.9, that Jesus Christ tasted death for all human beings while far from God, apart from God. We could even say without God. Only someone without God could say, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? We've given many reasons why that we have accepted the alternate translation instead of by the grace of God he tasted death for every man, though that's true for every person. It's even more striking that he tasted death or experienced death, which is the wages of sin for everyone, all of humanity over all the course of all time, apart from God, without God. We could even say far from God. Once you were far from the Messiah, once I was far from Christ, once we were apart from Israel's Messiah. Aliens, he says, and not citizens of historical Israel. And strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the depraved and ruined 
world. Now, before we go too much further with that, what a status that is. What a condition. Having no hope. Now, the world says, I hope so, and they pin their hopes on such and such a thing or on Karl Marx or upon utopianism or upon politics or politicians or philosophies, but that's to have no hope. They pin their hopes on a future that can be humanly created, but that's no hope. They also pin their fears on something men can do to ruin the future, which is a false fear. But we were once having no hope and without God in the depraved and ruined world. So was Jesus, though, on the cross. To be completed and to come into solidarity with humanity, a salvific solidarity, he had to be in the position of needing to be saved himself. He conformed himself to our situation in this depraved and ruined world. Our situation, which was hopeless and without God. He did so far away from God. But notice verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 2. But now, in Messiah Jesus, you who were once far away, here's another word I want to concentrate on for a moment, makran, M-A-K-R-A-N, far away, makran, I think we get the prefix macro from that. We're going to talk about a macrocosm or something. Macron. That means distant, remote, far away. But now in Messiah, you who were once far away, please notice that far away, Macron is related to Chorus in the sense that being apart from God is being far away from him. This again helps us in our interpretation of Hebrews 2.9. Jesus chorus apart from and far from God experienced death. You can't say he was close to God if you're saying he became sin for us. He became a curse for us, which is graphically depicted by his wearing of a cursed crown of thorns as he's impaled and hanging upon a tree. But now in Messiah Jesus, you who are once far away have been caused to be near, have been brought near, have been made to be near by the blood of the Messiah by the blood of the Messiah, by the blood of Jesus. The Messiah of Israel, the eternal Son of God, went where we were to bring us where he is now. He went where we are 
where we were, to a place far from God, a kind of a placeless place, a nowhere, where he became without God, estranged from historical Israel, and crucified at the behest of leaders and crowds in Jerusalem, cursed away from the promises and blessings of the covenants without God in this depraved and ruined world. He went where we were to bring us where he is now, exalted at God's right side, crowned, not with painful flesh-piercing thorns, but with glory and honor. We are now not only near to God, which may have been kind of an understatement, but we're hid with Christ in God. This nearness is not just the closeness of proximity, but the unity of intimacy. We are hid with Christ in God. We are in Christ Jesus, not only not far from him, not only not apart from him, not only without Christ, not only near him, but in Christ Jesus, a new creation. We are in Christ Jesus, in solidarity with him, salvific solidarity with the one who could not preserve his own life with the one who cried out to the one who was able to save him from the realm of death and was heard. We are in Christ Jesus, where circumcision and uncircumcision don't mean a thing. We are in Christ Jesus, where faith that works by love means quite a lot. We are in Christ Jesus. We died and our lives are hid with Christ in God. This is all because we've been caused to be made near by the blood of Messiah Jesus. Now a kind of intellectual conversion has to happen if we are to see Jesus in all of the scriptures. I'm going to give you a little test today and I give it to myself too. I have given it to myself and taken this test. Do you see Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son? Which is in Luke 15:11 to 32. Kind of a lead-in in 15:10 there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. And then 11 to 32 is that famous parable of the prodigal son, so-called. I think there are better titles for it. But do you see Jesus in the son and his father in the father? Well, you may say, and I did, in effect, 
Well, no, because the prodigal son, prodigal simply meaning wasteful, the prodigal son was obviously a sinner, and Jesus was without sin. So, no, I don't see Jesus in the prodigal son. Now, I'll grant you that, but the prodigal son is said to have, quote, traveled to a distant place. And the word is strange. It's a strange thing. I love the strange leading of the Holy Spirit. He traveled to a distant place, and that's Koran. Macron. Seems like we just saw that word in Ephesians, but I could be wrong, but I'm not on this one. Koran Macron, a country far away, a distant land. So this prodigal traveled to a distant land, a country far away. So did the eternal son of God. Luke fifteen thirteen. It's also said that after his wealth was gone, during a famine, he came to be in need, and as the Christian Standard Bible rightly puts it, he came to have nothing. He came to have nothing. Luke fifteen fourteen. Now that immediately reminded me of the prophecy spoken by Gabriel. To Daniel, in Daniel 9.26, the prophecy goes like this. The Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. So whatever you think of the prodigal, and maybe he was a sinner. I guess he was, surely. But is there a likeness between the prodigal and traveling to a distant land? Is there a likeness to the prodigal in coming to nothing? Daniel 9.26. It also reminds me of the prophecy of the second Isaiah, which says, of the Messiah, the suffering servant, he was cut off from the land of the living in Isaiah 53.8a. In the prodigal's case, he was struck because of his own rebellion, you could say. He came to the end of himself. In Jesus' case, it says in Isaiah 53, 8b, he was struck because of my people's rebellion, God said. In Luke fifteen seventeen, the prodigal son said, here I am dying of hunger. Reminds me so much of what Jesus said in John 19, 28. I thirst. He felt like he was dying of thirst. He was cut off. But you know what else this son said? In Luke fifteen eighteen, I will arise. And the word there. This is why I love the Greek, the New Testament Greek. The word he uses for arise is a form of the word that means resurrection. I will arise. A-N-I-S-T-E-M. 
I. Aniste me. I will arise. I'm dying, but I will arise. And you know what else he said? And go to my father. I will arise and go to my father. It seems like the similarities are outweighing the dissimilarities. The similarities to Jesus, the eternal son, seem to be outweighing the dissimilarities. The prodigal uses the same word as Jesus spoke in John 14, 2 and 3. I'm going away. I'm going to my father. John 14, 2 and 3, 14, 12, 14, 28, 16, 7, 16, 28. I'm going to my father. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. I went to a place so horrific as to be unimaginable so that I can go to my father and prepare an unimaginably beautiful place for you. By his own choice, Jesus went away to a far-off place. And by his own choice, he got up and went back to his father. I have power to lay my life down. I have power to take it back up again. It's true that Jesus did not sin like the prodigal son. Now listen carefully to this. It's true that Jesus did not sin like the prodigal son, who even said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Luke 15, 18 and Luke 15, 21. But Jesus became sin. It's a little bit further to say, I am sin, than to say, I have sinned. And when the son became sin, in doing so, he experienced the absolute wages that sin pays, which is a death which you will never know which I will never know, which none will ever know. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin, and in doing so, experienced death, the wages of sin, while far away from God his Father. So that we who were once far away would be brought near. Not only brought near, but made the righteousness of God in him, in solidarity with him, in union with him. Still in the parable, when the son was still way down the road on his return to the father, the father ran and embraced his son and said, this son of mine. It reminds us so much of the times when the father's voice 
skipped across the mountains and the hills of Judea and said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The father said, This son of mine was dead and is alive again. You don't think God the Father said that when Jesus returned to heaven? He was lost. Did Jesus experience being lost? Oh, you better believe it. He was lost. Was he lost to the Father? Did the Father experience that loss? Yes, he did. Is it impossible for us to describe that loss? Yes, it is. Are there analogies to that loss? Yes, when fathers lose their sons. When sons are apart from their fathers or have lost their fathers. But those are only analogies. And then what happened? Father's household began to celebrate. Now, if there's joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents, and you're not going to repent unless God grants you repentance in Acts 11:18, unless God's goodness leads you to repentance in Romans 2:4, unless God grants it in 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. But when a sinner is caused to turn about, the angels rejoice in heaven. So if there's joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents in Luke 15, 10, how much more joy was there and is there in the presence of the angels when he who went far away and became sin returned to heaven to be crowned with the glory of the King of Kings and with the honor of the great archpriest like Melchizedek. And if there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents, how much more rejoicing is going on because all who have sinned have been justified through the sons having gone far away and returned. And speaking of this celebration of angels and speaking of the blood of Jesus which has brought us near, consider once again a climactic passage in Hebrews, I speak of 12.22 to 24, again. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to, underline it, myriads of angels in festal gathering, celebratory jubilee. Festal Sabbath gathering, we could say. And to the, verse 3, the community of the firstborn 
registered as citizens of the heavens, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the justified made complete. And please notice that they are made complete by glorification. In other words, you've come to future world. In verse 24, you've also come to what? To whom? To the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Eloquent blood. So sure, there are some dissimilarities between the prodigal son and the son of God and between God the father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the prodigal son's father. But it seems that the similarities outweigh the dissimilarities. So maybe going from not even considering Jesus in the prodigal to seeing Jesus clearly in that parable, in that same story. Maybe that required a conversion along the way, or even more than one. Now, that's going to become very important to us in the near future, for we're going to deal with the theological functional specialty, TFS, called foundations. And foundations means conversions in the hearers of the word, the listeners of the word, the students of theology and of the Bible. Jesus, the Son of God, went where we were, far from God, like the prodigal son went far from his father. To bring us, Jesus did so, to bring us near to God by his own blood, which Acts 20, 28 calls the blood of his own, God the Father's own son, his own son's blood, therefore the Father's own blood in one sense, meaning the total involvement of the Father in our redemption. And not only did he bring us near to God, but because of him we are now hid with Christ in God, Colossians 3.3. 3. Jesus, the Son of God, became like us except for sin so that we could be like him except for his divinity. Though it can actually be said that according to God's great and precious promises, we are to be partakers of the divine nature through him and in him. In 2 Peter 1.5 without, of course, becoming divine. So in this last phase of today's message, I'll ask this question. Have we traveled far from our text? Because we're going kind of line upon line and we're in Hebrews 5. Have we traveled far from our text? Well, let's return. To Hebrews 5. Here's our translation so far. And you'll notice that in some cases I omitted a very crucial clause. Sometimes I do that by accident. And the omission of this crucial clause is found in verse 1. And today I'll emphasize it instead of omit it. Every archpriest 
selected from human beings, is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God, to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's the archpriest's primary duty, and it's discharged primarily on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Verse 2, and who is able to deal gently with the ignorant and those who are led astray, since he himself experiences weakness in many ways. And because of this weakness, which sometimes leads to sin, just as he offers sacrifices for the sins of the people, we're talking now about every archpriest under the Levitical order. Just as he offers sacrifices for the sins of the people, he must also do so for himself and no one takes this honor on himself that is the honor of being a high priest but is called by God just as Aaron was now I said before I'm a confessed Christ supremacist I believe in the supremacy of Jesus Christ over angels I believe in his supremacy over Moses I believe in his supremacy over Joshua as the captain of the Lord's hosts and armies. I believe in his supremacy over Aaron and the supremacy of his sacrifice over the sacrifices that were offered in the now divinely defunded system of Levitical sacrifices and temple sacrifices. So no one takes this honor on himself, but is called by God just as Aaron was. Now here comes Messiah in verse 5. Similarly, the Messiah did not promote himself to be archpriest. On the contrary, the one who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2.7, quoted already in Hebrews 1.5. Also said in another place, says verse 6, You are a priest for the age, just like Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, says verse 7, during his earthly life, that is, he offered both prayerful entreaties and supplications with a strong outcry and tears to the one who was able to save him out from the realm of death. Who is man? that you're concerned for him. And who is this son of man whom you visit for the purpose of salvation? Psalm 8, 4 through 6, LXX 8, 5 through 7. You are a priest forever like Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered both prayerful entreaties and supplications with a strong outcry and tears to the one who was able to save him out from the realm of death and was heard because of his reverential obedience. Verse 8, although he was, during the days of his flesh, the Son, the eternal Son, in whom God spoke in these last days, he learned this obedience through suffering. When you learn something, it's because you don't know it yet. And when Jesus limited himself by taking on human nature, he limited himself to having to learn. He grew in wisdom and stature 
and in favor with God and with men, says Luke 2.52. He learned this obedience through suffering. Now, A.T. Robertson, and I, I always like to keep this right by my side throughout any exegesis, on 5.8, A.T. Robertson in his word picture said this. He said, this is a succinct and crisp statement of the humanity of Jesus in full harmony with Luke 2.40. Luke 2.52, and with Hebrews 2.10. By the things which he suffered, and he has the word here, af, A-P-H, he only uses the transliteration, which helped me as a young Christian and a young student of the word, af, hon, epathen. You'll see the paranomasia here, the play on words. By the, by the things which he suffered, says Robertson, the things, there, and then he said there's a play on the two verbs, imathen, E-M-A-T-H-E-N, which means to learn, and epathen, which means to suffer. Paranomasia, we call it a pun. And so there's a kind of a pun between epathen, suffer, and imathen, learn. And then he says it's a second aorist active indicative of pasco, P-A-S-C-H, long O. He always did his father's will, John 8, 29, but he grew in experience as in wisdom and stature and in the power of sympathy with us. All that from A.T. Robertson on Hebrews 5, 8 from his word pictures. So we continue with Hebrews 5, 9. And being made complete, remember Hebrews is all about completion. And being made complete, he became to those who obey him the source of age-abiding salvation. Now, we see Jesus as the Greek word archegos, A-R-C-H-E-G-O-S, archegos. That means founder of salvation in Hebrews 2.10. The word archegon is used also, or archegos is used of Jesus by name in Hebrews 12.2 as the author of faith and the perfecter also of faith. We see Jesus then as the archegos, the founder of salvation. We see Jesus here in Hebrews 5.9 as the aitios, a i. T-I-O-S, accent here, and soft breathing. I-T-O-S, A-I-T-I-O-S, I-T-O-S. And I-T-O-S means the source of age-abiding salvation, the source. This is like the terminology in Acts 3.15 where Jesus is called the prince or author of life. Ton archegon, tes zoes, you'll see it in print. And in Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God elevated this man, says verse 31, to his right hand as founder and savior. That's archegon, again, founder, kai sotera, savior. 
Now, who would have imagined that a crucified man bearing a cursed crown of thorns would be the founder and source, the prince and author of life, the leader of the entire human race into eternal life. That's who he is. Who would have known it? Who would have imagined it? Seeing him impaled to a tree. His face beaten beyond recognition. His brow pierced with a crown of thorns. His feet nailed to the tree as well as his hands. Who would have known it? Who would have known that he was the leader of the entire human race into eternal life and the great shepherd of the sheep? Who would have known him who was the Lamb of God, a bone of whom would not be broken, would be the shepherd of the sheep, the great shepherd of the sheep that God would lead up from the realm of the dead on account of the value of the blood of the everlasting covenant, the blood of Jesus. In Hebrews 5, 7, his prayers and supplications in the days of his flesh certainly illustrated and evinced his humanity, his weakness. But it also showed his action as priest, for he offered those prayers. The days of his flesh culminated in his priestly act of offering a gift and a sacrifice for sins. Hebrews 5.1b, the omitted but now pronounced clause. An offering and a gift for sins that's unrepeatable and was accomplished for all people for all time and forever. In other words, by his blood, he made everyone, all who sinned, come near to God. Who would have known? Or he who would have even imagined that this was an act, this crucifixion, this death, This was an act, along with prayers and supplications, offered to the one who was able to save him out of the realm of death. His obedience, his self-offering. Who would have known? His passage through the heavens, his entry into the Holy of Holies by his own blood was for the benefit. Now here is what we call a benevolent, Christology, what McCrudden called it, and I agree, a benevolent Christology. For the benefit of all human beings, confer with 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, in fact, 2, 1 to 6. You should read and study that sometime. Jesus certainly acted in behalf of all human beings in things that pertain to God, namely, by his expiation propitiation for sins by the purification of sins. There's no need now daily for sacrifices. No need for daily sacrifices. No need for annual sacrifices. The reality, this reality of what we used to call and still do the finished work of Christ was dramatically demonstrated by God's judgment of Jerusalem 
and the total demolition of the stone temple in August of A.D. 70. How much more dramatic could God be than to say, these sacrifices are done. The system is abrogated. So now is the eternal Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now is the Day of Salvation, 2 Corinthians 6.2. Today, therefore, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't stiffen your mind against insights and mature doctrines. And don't become nonchalant about listening to the word of God and to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. Now is the most crucial time of your life. In the days of your flesh. The days of your flesh are the only time, only now, that we can become obedient in a way that affects future world and our own destiny and that of others to the good. So, Father, we thank you today for allowing us to see Jesus as the archegos and the aitios, as the founder and the source and cause of age-abiding salvation. And we thank you, Father, that you have brought us near, that once we were so far away, once we were without hope, we were without God in a depraved and ruined world. And we were far from Christ. But thank you that he who was in your very bosom traveled far from you and endured far from you the wages of sin, which is death for us all. May you infuse into us the gratitude that befits the saints and is the decorum of a redeemed people. And may the redeemed of the Lord say so, and say so boldly when asked. And may you grant us the grace to hold fast the confession as your servant Frank Lewis did until the very end. We ask it in the name of our Savior, our Lord, the source of our salvation, the founder of our faith our great archpriest, and the one whom we look so very much forward to see in the flesh, face to face, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.